Hi, I'm taking a break over the next few weeks. Meanwhile, here's an episode you might have missed. So you'll know, I have some fantastic guests lined up in 2023, many that you've requested. Season's greetings and happy 2023 to all of y'all. Thank you for the messages, emails, support, and the reviews. You make the magic happen for all things Tudor. Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi. I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome our guest, Matt Lewis. Matt is an author and historian of the Middle Ages with a particular focus on the Wars of the Roses and King Richard III. Matt is always seeking to return to contemporary source materials, and he has written biographies of Richard III, his father, Richard Duke of York, Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, and Henry III, along with accounts of the Wars of the Roses and the Anarchy. Welcome, Matt. Nice to see you. I'm good. Thank you, Deb. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I'm excited that you've joined, and I can't wait to hear what you have to share with us. I mean, I'm happy to sit here and waffle all day long about all things Richard III and the princes in the tower. So I guess it's how much of this your listeners can tolerate and put up with. Yeah, so Richard III has been an interest for me since I was at school doing my A-levels, which is the exams we sit over here in the UK at 18. I had a fantastic history teacher during my A-levels. She was really enthusiastic and the kind of teacher that that rubs off and sticks with you for the rest of your life. So... I've read about and studied the Wars of the Roses ever since then. I won't say how many years it is because it's far more than I like to remember. But she, I think, was interested in Richard III. I never got to the bottom of whether she was a Ricardian and perhaps I need to try and track her down and ask her. But I got the distinct feeling that perhaps she was a closet, unannounced Ricardian because when we got to studying the bit about Richard III in the Wars of the Roses, she sort of paused and said, now with the Richard III part, you need to look at what sources you're reading, when were they written, who wrote them, why do you think they wrote them, what were they trying to tell you, what did they want you to take away from all of that. And wherever possible, you should look to get back to the contemporary source material. And that's what's really stuck with me. And hopefully what comes across in my writing and my research is that I'm keen to always get back to the contemporary source material and try to avoid those kind of secondary sources that feed in all kinds of bias, but also inaccuracy that comes with time and rumours and stories and myths and legends that build up around these things. And Richard III has struck me ever since as a particular case where those myths and legends are particularly strong and particularly prevalent and quite difficult to bat away, to get through. There are a lot of facts that defy the kind of traditional accepted version of Richard III. But I think people cling to what they feel they know. They feel they know the story of Richard III. And unfortunately, it's always quite a Shakespearean view. So the hunchbacked, limping, terrible villain who kind of comes on stage and announces all of the evils that he's going to commit. And I I absolutely love Shakespeare's play, Richard III. I think it's a fascinating study of an anti-hero. You know, Shakespeare's Richard is someone that we find ourselves kind of sympathising with and almost wanting him to succeed. We go along with all of his jokes while he's on stage. We're laughing along with him, even though we know he's murdered his nephews, arranged the death of his brother, killing his wife, all of these kinds of things. We almost like him, and that's the trick that Shakespeare plays on us, and that's why he's such a a fascinating study of an anti-hero and a, a villain and how we relate to those kinds of people. But it isn't history. I don't think it was ever 
meant to be history. And I think it's our mistake that we've spent centuries taking it as an historical account of Richard III's reign. From my own point of view, the Shakespeare play, I think, is interesting because I think it was meant as Shakespeare's commentary on his contemporary politics. So we can bring in a bit of Tudor here. He's writing it in the mid-1490s. So Elizabeth I is getting on a bit. I'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying that. She's obviously unlikely to produce an heir at this point. So there is lots of question and concern about who is going to succeed Elizabeth I. Will it be a Catholic? Will it be a Protestant? We're often told that Shakespeare was most likely a recalcitrant Catholic, so he remained a Catholic. And I think we see that in some of his other plays and his other writings as well. And we also know that the Protestant succession of James VI of Scotland, who goes on to become James I of England, is being kind of masterminded by William Cecil and his son Robert. So William Cecil, Lord Burley, is Elizabeth I's longtime close advisor. And his son Robert is sort of being trained to step into his father's boots to, to be the king's right-hand man or the queen's right-hand man. And they're trying to plot the Protestant succession of the Stuart King of Scotland. And so I think if we look at it in the contemporary politics in which it was written and first performed, we can see Shakespeare's Richard III as a commentary on late Elizabethan politics, all of the concerns about the rightful king, who should succeed, who is scheming and plotting to get somebody onto the throne. And if Shakespeare was a Catholic who favoured a Catholic succession, then he would have been against what the Cecils were trying to plan and put together. And the interesting thing about Robert Cecil is that we know from the historical accounts that he suffered with kyphosis, which is different to Richard III's scoliosis, which is a sideways curvature of the spine that results in one shoulder being slightly higher than the other. Robert Cecil, we know, had kyphosis, which is a forward curvature of the spine, which is what Shakespeare unkindly terms as a bunchback. He doesn't actually call it a hunchback in his play. He calls it a bunchback. So when we see this character limping onto the stage, hunched over, I think a late Elizabethan audience would have been very clear that they were supposed to be looking at Robert Cecil, who then goes on to explain all of his evil plans to usurp the throne. In this case, it would be on behalf of the Stuarts, but he's plotting this Protestant succession under everybody's nose. Everybody can see what he's doing and he's being allowed to get away with it. And so I think Shakespeare was possibly passing that kind of comment on late Elizabethan politics rather than asking us to see the historical Richard III. Richard III becomes this convenient villain who he can use from fairly recent history to talk about what happens when the succession is uncertain and it's upset and it's perhaps derailed in Shakespeare's view. And so I think it's kind of an accident that Richard's story as told by Shakespeare, becomes what is accepted as a, a historical account of Richard's life and reign for centuries that follow. And the focus of my studies has always been to get back to the more contemporary source material. So when I wrote my biography of Richard, for example, it's a big old doorstep of a book. You know, if you don't particularly want to read it or you don't enjoy it. It makes a brilliant doorstop. If you can't reach your kitchen cupboards, gives you an extra few inches to stand on. So there's good reasons to buy the book. But over half the book talks about Richard's life before he becomes king. So we tend to get a situation where most writers introduce Richard almost in 1483 as he's becoming king. And it's kind of without any context or background or explanation of who he was and where he was coming from. But he was 30 in 1483. So there is a lot that had gone on in his life before that. And we can track a phenomenal amount of information about him because he was the most powerful man in the country for a long time after his brother, Edward IV, the king. So we can see lots of what Richard is doing and what he's interested in and what he's fascinated by. And I think it's important to understand who he is by 1483 because that's the man that steps into all of the problems of 
that terrible year. His brother dies unexpectedly. There are all sorts of machinations and plots going on in London and around the court. And whichever side you think Richard is on, whether he's the bad guy or the good guy or kind of stumbling through it, making a bit of a mess of it, the fact is it's a mess. London and politics is a mess and it's not a mess of Richard's making. It's a mess that he is inserted into by his brother. And I think you have to understand who that man is. And the more you understand about Richard before 1483, the less that traditional view of him as a terrible, cruel monster stacks up. It just starts to not make any sense. And you can start to see a different story about why people weren't happy with Richard's reign and why they potentially abandoned him that has nothing to do with Richard being an evil tyrant or the idea that Richard might have usurped the throne, which I don't think you can describe him as a usurper, actually. It's very difficult to make out that Richard usurped the throne in any kind of technical or legal sense. And I don't think it had much to do with the princes in the tower either. What we see a lot in Richard's early life for those maybe dozen or so years before 1483, when he is effectively ruling the north of England on behalf of his older brother, Edward IV, is a man who has quite unusual ideas and interests for his time. He's not unusual in that he's pious, but he is very pious. He has lots and lots of books. He has a vast library. He's written his name in lots of these books and they're well read. And these include things like medieval romances, stories of, of great knights and love stories and things like that alongside the kind of military texts of the day. So Vegetius's texts on how to perform in war sit alongside medieval romances of knights saving damsels in distress. And we also know from the sources that Richard was incredibly well-trained in the law. So the Crowland Chronicler, for example, talks about Richard and his brother George when they're trying to divvy up the Warwick inheritance that they sort of get half each of. Talking about them presenting their own legal arguments and the Crowland Chronicler, who is anonymous but was a, a canon lawyer and, a, and at the centre of Yorkist government, is clearly impressed by these men and he talks about how good their legal arguments are and how well-structured they are and how they've managed to put together these really strong, convincing cases. So we know that Richard is interested in the law. He's interested in romance and stories of chivalry. And he's interested in how to be a good prince and how to be a good soldier. So he owns these books that are called Mirrors of Princes that talk about how to be a good ruler, how to act and how to behave as a lord. And I think there are examples that we can point to during his time in the North that probably paint a different picture than people see in 1483. But I think there is no break in Richard's behaviour. So there are several examples we could talk about. So in the early 1470s, just after they come back to the throne, after Edward IV's been briefly booted off the throne, Henry VI has been put back in place for six months, Edward IV comes back with Richard and a very small army and they end up defeating the Earl of Warwick and everybody else, and Edward gets the throne back. So shortly after this, there is quite a long sitting of Parliament because there is a lot to sort out. There's been a whole lot of mess. We've had, you know, one king go, another come. He's gone again quickly. There's lots to sort out. But one of the things that crops up in the Parliament is a murder case that takes place near York. This is a lady called Catherine Williamson who brings the case of her husband who was murdered by three brothers on the road and this seems to have got to Parliament because it was brought to the attention of Richard as Duke of Gloucester. And what happened was these three brothers were accused of murdering Catherine Williamson's husband and they went to their father and said what they'd done and their response was to try and get the four of them into service of Richard, Duke of Gloucester as the most powerful local lord who could protect them. So we have this system of livery and maintenance in place which effectively means that you take a lord's livery badge, you become one of his men, and in return, he maintains you. So initially, as it, when it started off, this maintenance would be a form of putting a roof over your head, giving you food. But it turned into this kind of 
broken, corrupted system whereby that maintenance became more about protecting those in a Lord's service from the legal consequences of their bad actions. So these were kind of small private armies of thugs, effectively, that a powerful Lord would protect from the law so that they could do his dirty work. So these four accused felons, three brothers and their father, try to get into Richard's service and they succeed. But then someone tells Richard that the three brothers are accused of murder and that their father has protected them and that he's been duped into taking them into his service. Now, if Richard was an evil, vicious, ambitious man who wanted thugs on his side, he'd probably rub his hands together and think, great, these are the kind of guys I want around me to do my wicked deeds for me. But what Richard actually does is have the father arrested and sent to jail in York to await his trial. And the three brothers actually manage to escape and flee, but Richard continually has them searched for and hunted and warrants read for their arrest all over the place in Yorkshire. And so he kind of gives up this ability to build an affinity of ruthless men in favour of justice for this woman whose husband has been killed on the way home. And what does Richard gain from championing Catherine Williamson? Well, nothing. It's just the right thing to do, I think we would say. And we get cases later on when Richard is brought into conflict with his own mother, Cecily Neville, the Duchess of York. John and Lucy Prince, who own a manor called Gregory's, find that one day they are attacked by a London goldsmith who brings a, a whole load of men down, starts to round up their cattle, starts to steal all of their things and claims that he actually owns Gregory's. And essentially, John and Lucy Prince flee. They run away from this kind of small army that's come to attack them. And it's actually Lucy Prince that goes back with a warrant from the sheriff telling them to stop. John Prince doesn't make it back, so clearly Lucy was the brave one out of the two of them. But she goes back, and they end up having this discussion where this goldsmith says, you know, I'm in the service of Richard, Duke of Gloucester, and he'll protect me. And... Lucy Prince says, well, we're in the service of Cecily Neville and she'll protect us just as well as your Lord will. And these men sort of say, well, you know, now we'll find out who has the best of it, my Lord or your lady. And clearly they're pitting Richard and Cecily against each other. And Wethiel, this gold merchant, is expecting Richard to protect him because he's in his service. But again, Richard doesn't. What he does is set up a panel of lawyers with his mother, so they provide half the lawyers each to investigate the ownership of Gregory's. And at one point, one of Richard's men kind of tries to interfere and bully some of the witnesses, and Richard writes to him and tells him to pack it in, stop it immediately. So again, he is not interested in bullying people to get the results that he wants. He is allowing justice to take its course. And in the end, this panel find that the Gregory's belongs to John and Lucy Prince, that Wethiel, this gold merchant, has no claim to it. And Richard sends him to the king's council to explain what he had done and effectively tells him to behave himself from now on and never to bring Richard's name into disrepute again. And even later into the early 1480s, we have a case of a John Ranson, who is described as a husbandman. And a man called Sir Robert Claxton of Horden is preventing John Ranson from working on his own lands. And John Ransom writes to Richard, Duke of Gloucester, asking for help, saying, what do I do? And Richard takes John Ransom's side. He looks into the matter again, finds that Sir Robert Claxton has no leg to stand on. He's just being a bully. And again, Robert Claxton was probably expecting that Richard would support him and back him up because he had a son and a son-in-law in Richard's service. But Richard, again, demonstrates that that doesn't interest him because he writes to Sir Robert Claxton. He gives him several opportunities to come and present his case and Robert Claxton never turns up. So in the end, Richard writes this letter to him, which kind of is a medieval version of don't make me come down there and sort this out myself. And he tells him to get off John Ransom's land and give it him back. And I think what's interesting about these cases that we can point to is that more often than not, what Richard is doing is supporting someone lower down the social ladder against their superiors and against people who are in Richard's service and might expect Richard's protection. And the question I was constantly asking reading these cases was, what does Richard gain from doing this? 
He doesn't gain power and authority. In fact, he risks giving it up because people won't necessarily want to be in his affinity if he doesn't protect them in the way that they believe they should be protected from all of the consequences of their crimes and their bad actions. So Richard really gains very little from behaving like this except for doing the right thing, for seeing justice done. And so that seemed to me to be a very strong interest of Richard's. And again, that doesn't tally with the man who rolls into London in 1483 and viciously deposes his own nephews just so that he can be king and kind of steals the throne from them and then behaves like a tyrant around the country. But what it does tally with is a man who goes through 1483 and, and you know, that's a whole other conversation that we can have about what actually happened to make Richard king. But I think a lot of the reason that people abandon Richard is because he continues these policies of championing the common man against their social superiors. And who doesn't like that? Well, their social superiors don't like that. In Parliament in 1484, in January and February, Richard enacts these laws. So he reforms the bail law to prevent it from being denied to people who weren't getting access to bail. And for the first time, he institutes a system which says that you can't have your goods seized until you're convicted of a crime. So prior to that, you could have your goods seized when you were arrested on suspicion of something. And even if you were found not guilty, there was no requirement to turn those goods back over to the person who had been found innocent, the sheriff or whoever could decide to keep those things. And they could be the tools of a man's trade or everything that he has to live off through the winter. So a person could be ruined to the point of starvation by a false accusation being made against them. So Richard starts to close down all of those avenues by which people's lives are made difficult at the bottom of the social ladder. And in doing that, he's obviously taking away rights and powers of those further up the social ladder. So really we're talking about the regional gentry figures, knights and gentry, who have thrived off corruption. One of the other things that Richard complains about is the corruption under Edward IV's reign. And he starts to shut down all of those avenues of corruption. And it's this layer of gentry and knights, especially in the southeast of England, closest to the courts of Edward IV, so who had probably prospered the most from that corruption, they're the ones that abandon Richard and go over to Henry Tudor in exile in Brittany first and then in France. And they're the ones who fight against Richard at the Battle of Bosworth. So I don't think it has anything to do with noble ideas around what may have happened to Edward IV's sons or Richard being a tyrant who had no right to the throne. I think it has to do with corrupt men finding their incomes and their paths to corruption broken by Richard and thrashing against that by going over to Henry Tudor, believing that this nobody in exile in Brittany who has no experience will be forced to rely on them when he comes back and therefore they'll be able to reopen all of these ways in which they have been able to be corrupt. And I think the one thing that comes out of it is that once Henry gets his feet under the table as king, they're very quickly disabused of the idea that he's a puppet. They very much don't get the king that they were expecting when Henry Tudor is set up and knows what he's doing. So I think the reasons that people abandon Richard are probably not what people have always thought them to be. I think there's a very different story there. So I think to believe in the traditional version of Richard, the ambitious monster, you're forced to ignore not only a lot of the contemporary evidence, and you have to rely on the later writing of Tudor writers like Thomas More and people like that, but you also have to ignore the first 30 years of Richard's life and the way that he has behaved up until 1483. You have to say that all of that was either a lie or he has some kind of Damascene conversion, although the other way around, I guess, in 1483 and suddenly becomes an ambitious, ruthless monster when faced with the crisis of his brother's death, which isn't impossible, I guess, but it's kind of fighting against the evidence at this point. So I think to maintain that traditional version of Richard starts to become an effort 
to ignore a lot of what was going on. And I think the more you genuinely set that baggage down and read about what Richard did and the way he behaved and some of the issues around what was happening in 1483 and beyond that, the less that traditional monster stands up and the more he begins to kind of crumble away and you see that there was a very different man behind those layers of myth and legend that we've been bequeathed by people like Thomas More and William Shakespeare throughout the 16th century. But Thomas More is another one that I don't think was ever... I mean, we know he never published his story of Richard III. He never finished it and he never published it. His nephew wrote the end of it and published it about 20 years after More was executed. And again, like Shakespeare, I don't think Thomas More was writing history in the way that we think of writing history. That didn't really exist as a discipline in the 15th and 16th centuries. History was a branch of rhetoric. It was a way of telling stories. It was a way of looking for moral tales and wrapping them up in a kind of nice story that people could relate to because they'd heard about these figures in the past. So I think Thomas More was writing about the dangers of tyranny, and I think he was aiming it at Henry VIII, although you can't obviously call this Henry VIII's a terrible man, isn't he? Because that's the surest way to get your head separated from your shoulders. And we know that Thomas More had had experience of this. So under Henry VII, he had opposed a taxation in Parliament only for his father to be imprisoned in the immediate aftermath. So I think he'd learnt the lesson that you can't speak out directly against the king and the government, which I'm surprised he had to learn that lesson, to be fair. But nevertheless, I think his Richard III was meant as an exercise in rhetoric and allegory to talk about tyranny. So I think his Edward V is the promise of Henry VIII. So this young king, full of promise, innocent, Everybody believed he's going to be wonderful. Isn't he a a wonderful young man? Great big strapping lad. He's going to do great. And that king is usurped and replaced by Richard III, who I think represents what Moore saw as what they actually got with Henry VIII. So Henry VIII starts his reign off by ordering the executions of Empson and Dudley, ostensibly for doing what his father, Henry VII, had ordered them to do. So they did their jobs under Henry VII, Henry VIII comes along and because these two men are the figureheads of the unpopular financial policies of his father's later years, Henry sees a chance to impress people, win people over by having these men executed and he quite willingly sacrifices them to improve his own reputation and that for me is where real tyranny starts and I think that's what Thomas More is talking about. So I think his Richard III is what he fears Henry VIII could become because we we quite often talk about Henry VIII becoming a tyrant and a monster in the 1530s but that was there right from the very very start of his reign he was capable of behaving that way and so I think Thomas More was sort of talking about the ways in which he shouldn't behave like that so again like Shakespeare I think Richard III becomes this convenient character that you can use to wrap around all of these stories that you want to tell And perhaps Thomas More stopped writing it, he didn't finish it or publish it because he entered royal service under Henry VIII and he thought, well, I don't need to do this now because I can try to change things from the inside. I'm going to be in the inner circle here. I can enact those changes that I think we should see. I can try to moderate Henry's behaviour. And we know, you know, ultimately they fall out about Henry VIII's wish to be divorced from Catherine of Aragon and the supremacy of Henry over the English church, something that Moore just can't accept. So perhaps Moore felt that he was right in the end, that Henry was a tyrant and a dangerous man to be around. And ultimately that would cost Moore his life. So I think these histories that we rely on for our versions of Richard III are are not only wrong. One of the striking things about Thomas More, people will say he's a saint, He's also a lawyer, you know, he would have checked his facts, he would have been as accurate as it was possible to be. But if you look at Moore's Richard III, the very first sentence of it is a mistake. He gives the age of Edward IV and he gets it almost 10 years wrong. 
And I think that's his little pointer to say this isn't real fact. Because why would he say this completely wrong age? Would he have gone back and checked it later? Well, we could say that about every fact that he says. Every name that he throws in then is cast into doubt because we have this one sentence right at the start that is demonstrably, factually, utterly incorrect. But I think that was deliberate on Moore's part. It's a little signpost that says this isn't history. And so I think we've accepted a lot of these myths and legends about Richard III that were never meant to tell us his history and what he was really like, but we've taken them as that. People will talk about Richard III relying on Shakespeare's play or relying on Thomas More, and particularly as evidence of some of the crimes that he's accused of, virtually all of which you can easily discount or at least throw an awful lot of doubt on. And I mean, the greatest of those is probably the, the fate of the princes in the tower, I guess. Something else that I've written a book on called The Survival of the Princes in the Tower. So if you're in any doubt what I think happened, it's probably given away in the title of that book. But I think the, again, the traditional story doesn't stack up. So I wrote this book wanting to look at all of the other ideas that surrounded the fate of the princes in the tower that were not normally examined. It very definitely wasn't an effort to say that I'd solved the case. And I absolutely concede that their murders in 1483 are still entirely possible and that Richard has to be the prime suspect if there were murders. But that doesn't mean it definitely was him and it doesn't mean there definitely were murders. So this book was an exploration of all of the other ideas around what may have happened to them if they weren't killed in 1483 and if they survived beyond 1485. And there's surprising amounts of evidence to back up the idea that at least one, and I think both of them, were still alive after 1485. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in all things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. So for my money, we've got two missing princes and we get two pretenders to the Tudor throne during the early years of Henry VII's reign. I don't think that's a coincidence. The first of those is Lambert Simnel. So this is an uprising in 1487 in which the traditional story tells us a boy from Oxford is taken over to Ireland by a priest and is trained to impersonate Edward Earl of Warwick, who is a nephew of Richard III and Edward IV. But he's also a prisoner of Henry VII in the Tower of London. So this whole thing becomes a bit of a joke because they're claiming to have this boy that Henry parades around London and is very clearly a prisoner. They invade England. We get the Battle of Stoke Field at which their forces made up largely of Irish kerns, Irish soldiers and some German mercenaries are utterly defeated by Henry VII and we get this story that Lambert Simnel is found on the battlefield spared by the merciful Henry and put to work in the royal kitchens. But I think all of that is a cover for the fact that the Lambert Simnel affair was really about Edward V. And the fact that everybody in this period is called Edward or Richard or Henry, which infuriates historians, was used by the early Tudor government to kind of turn this threat into a bit of a joke. And I've kind of divided the evidence for this idea into two types. So we have the documentary evidence, but we also have the evidence of human actions because we don't have a lot of documentary evidence for what happened to the princes in the tower one way or the other, whether they were murdered or whether they survived. We have lots of rumours flying around in various sources that something might have happened to them, that Richard may have done something, that Buckingham might have done something. One of them could have escaped. These are all just rumours 
flying around everywhere. The early certainty about the fate of the princes really comes from France, and France has a very obvious reason for wanting to paint Richard as a bit of a monster at this time. But with the Lambert Simnel affair, we get lots of talk about... Polydor Virgil, for example, talks about it being a plot to restore Edward to the throne. Now, Edward, Earl of Warwick, can't be restored to the throne because he's never been king. The only Edward who can be restored, if he's still alive in 1487, is Edward V. We have the coronation in Dublin that's documented as taking place. And a coronation is the missing piece of Edward V's kingship. So he is proclaimed king in 1483, but never crowned. So we have the coronation taking place. We have Bernard André, the court poet to Henry VII, who writes a life of Henry VII and a chronicle of all of these times, who says specifically that this boy in Ireland was claiming to be a son of Edward IV. And he repeats this several times. So I would suggest it's not a mistake or a slip of his pen because he says it several times. And he says that Harold gets sent over to Ireland at one point who claims that he knew the boy, knew who the boy that he was claiming to be, and that he would go and question him and examine him and prove that he was a liar. And this herald comes back and says, well, he answered all my questions and I can't tell you he doesn't look like the boy he's claiming to be. And this boy that he's claiming to be, according to Bernard André, is a son of Edward IV called Edward. Well, that's Edward V. So we do have written sources that are pointing to the idea that this wasn't what the official story was telling us it was. And we also have this this kind of human element to the evidence as well. So I don't think you can ignore the actions of people, particularly those that would be affected by the princes in the tower. So in the book, I liken the continued existence of the princes in the tower to something like a black hole in history. So we can't see a black hole in space, but we can see the gravitational effect it has on things around it. We can't see the princes in the tower in the historical record, either alive or dead, really. But what we can look for is that gravitational effect on the people who cared about them and the people who would be affected by their deaths or their survivals. Central to that, I think, is their mother, Elizabeth Woodville. We know that she comes out of sanctuary in March 1484 and allows her daughters to go to Richard III's court, encourages her son from her first marriage, Thomas Grey, the Marquis of Dorset, who is on the continent with Henry Tudor, encourages him to come back. Now, these aren't the actions for me of a woman who believes or knows that Richard has murdered her two young sons by Edward IV. But she's also accused of being involved in the Lambert Simnel affair. And that doesn't make any sense if it's an uprising in favour of Edward, Earl of Warwick, because she gains nothing by putting her deceased husband's nephew on the throne. She's quite often implicated in arranging or organising or encouraging Edward towards the execution of George, Duke of Clarence, who was Edward Earl of Warwick's father. So Warwick is unlikely to be sympathetic to Elizabeth Woodville. So why would she be involved or even be suspected of being involved in this uprising? She's got a daughter who is Queen of England, Henry VII's wife, Elizabeth of York. She has a grandson, Arthur, who is set to inherit the throne next. Well, what puts her in a better position in 1487 than having a daughter on the throne and a grandson waiting to inherit? I would argue that the only thing that puts her in a better position is having a son on the throne of England, and that would be Edward V, assuming that he was still alive, or at least she believed he was. And we know that Thomas Grey, the Marquis of Dorset, who I mentioned before, is thrown to the Tower of London during the Lambert Simnel Uprising. And anecdotally, we're told that he he says, you know, why am I being put in prison? What have I done wrong? And he's told that if he's really loyal to Henry VII's regime, he won't mind a spell in the tower to prove it. So he's suspected of involvement in the Lambert Simnel affair as well. And like his mother, what does he gain by putting Warwick on the throne in place of his own sister? I would argue nothing. And perhaps the biggest piece of human evidence in this is the actions of a man named John de la Pole, the Earl of Lincoln. He is the oldest nephew of 
Richard III and Edward IV, the son of their sister, Elizabeth, the Duchess of Suffolk. And so Lincoln is initially courted by Henry VII. He tries to keep him loyal. He's treated with respect and growing trust, I think, even if Henry didn't really trust him. But in the end, Lincoln flees over to Burgundy, joins up with the Lambert Simnel affair and is the military leader, effectively, of the army that, that arrives in England. And John de la Pole in 1487 has probably the best Yorkist claim to the throne if the princes in the tower are dead. So Edward, Earl of Warwick, is legally barred from accession by his father's attainder as a traitor. So he can't legally become king. John de la Pole is the oldest nephew, the oldest living adult male of the House of York. And so arguably would have been heir to Richard III after Richard's son died in 1484, although it's not something that's ever specifically dealt with at all. And so I would ask why John de la Pole sets aside his own perfectly good Yorkist claim to the throne. And the fact that John de la Pole is a grown-up, that everybody knows who he is, there's no doubt over his identity, all of these would have made him much more preferable, I think, to a boy from Oxford who is pretending to be a boy who is a prisoner in the Tower, because either way you end up with a boy king, one who is legally barred from the throne. And John de la Pole has none of these problems. So what makes him set aside his own potential claim to be the rightful king of England in favour of somebody else? Well, the only people who had a better Yorkist claim to the throne in 1487 than John de la Pole were the sons of Edward IV, who had been re-legitimised by Henry VII. And so Edward V and Richard, Duke of York, were the senior Yorkist heirs to the throne. So the only person I think that John de la Pole would have set his own claim aside for in 1487 is Edward V. And I think if you allow for those facts, then it starts to make more sense of what happened in 1487. I don't think the boy Lambert Simnel who ends up working in the royal kitchens was the leader of this army at all. I think he's a boy who's plucked from somewhere as a figurehead for all of these things that go on. And I think if Edward V was at the Battle of Stoke Field, we don't know what happened to him after that. So he could have died in the battle. We have one account from Adrian de Brute that says he was taken abroad, that he was you know, swept away from the battlefield over the channel and onto the continent. Or was he captured and placed somewhere else as a prisoner of Henry VII? We just don't know. But I think a lot of that stuff makes more sense if it was an uprising in favour of Edward V than an uprising in favour of Edward, Earl of Warwick. And I think, you know, Perkin Warbeck in the 1490s, again, I just think there is so much evidence to suggest that he was genuine and that people believed he was genuine, as certain as lots of people seem to be that he was a fraud. The confession that he signs is full of inconsistencies and problems. I think it's a document that's prepared for him to sign. And we have several accounts of Perkin Warbeck after his capture being beaten around the face. So Bernard Andre says that he is beaten by Henry's servants when he's captured. Diego de Valera, the Spanish ambassador, talks about Perkin being disfigured by the time he arrives in London and, and worrying that he won't live much longer if he continues to be treated this way. And we have a Herald's account that says Perkin had no lustre in his left eye and it was all but destroyed. And so it's clear that he'd been beaten. Well, why would he be beaten? Probably because he looked utterly convincing as Richard, Duke of York. And so I think Henry VII felt that he needed to obscure those looks. Perkin talked about, during his time claiming to be Richard of England, he talked about three physical marks that he had that would prove to anyone who knew Richard, Duke of York, that he was genuine. And Henry VII strikingly never refutes this. He never wheels him out and says, either you don't have these three marks that Richard, Duke of York had, or actually, you know, here's all Richard, Duke of York's sisters who say that he never had the marks that you have that you're talking about. Potentially one of the marks that we can see, which might be one of the things he talks about. Frustratingly, he never tells us what the three marks are, but one of them may be a cast in his left eye, which if we see the sketch of Perkin Warbeck that was done when he was in Burgundy with Margaret, Duchess of Burgundy, it looks like he possibly has a drooping eyelid on his left eye. And we know that this is a trait of the Plantagenet family. We know that Henry III and Edward I had these drooping eyelids too. So was this a physical mark that Richard, Duke of York had had 
that proved who he was. And this is the reason that he has to be beaten around the face until this Herald says his left eye is effectively destroyed. It's interesting that they focus on that area and his physical appearance in order to destroy any resemblance to Richard, Duke of York, I guess. And a resemblance might not mean that he was the real Richard, Duke of York. There are theories that he was an illegitimate son of Edward IV. But, you know, again, you're starting to push against the weight of the evidence that suggests Perkin at least could have been the genuine Richard, Duke of York. So whilst I don't claim to have solved the story of the princes in the tower, what I ask readers, I guess, is for a, an open mind. And I allow for the fact that they could have been murdered in 1483 and that that could have been on Richard's orders, but I don't think it's likely. And I think there are these other options. So all I ask is that people look at those options with a slightly open mind. You know, set it, again, set aside that baggage that you think you know what happened to the princes in the tower. You think you know what Richard III's motives were and that, of course, he had to kill the princes because... I'm not convinced any of that is true. And I mean, I don't know how much longer you can cope with me talking, but there is an example of what a king did with two young boys who had a claim to his throne. I'm absolutely mesmerised and taking notes like I'm going to have a test later. So I love this. So you can talk all you want. Well, I'll just tell you this story. So if we're thinking about how might a king deal with two young boys who have what some might consider to be a better claim to the throne than he does. I think Richard, if he looks to his history, has two ways to go in 1483. So we have what I describe as the King John way. So we know that when King John comes to the throne in 1199, there are some who believe that his nephew, Arthur of Brittany, has a better claim to the throne. So Arthur is the son of John's older brother, Geoffrey, who has already passed away. He actually died before Arthur was born. And Eleanor of Aquitaine particularly champions John's accession rather than Arthur's. And eventually the two end up at war. So we, we get a situation at one point where Arthur actually besieges his nan, uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine, in a castle. And John comes hurrying to her rescue in one of his very rare military successes manages to break this siege and capture Arthur and sort of rescue his mom. And lots of the sources then tell us that, again, nobody knows what happened to Arthur of Brittany, so arguably the first real prince in the tower. But lots of the sources talk about John murdering him. Some of them say that John did it himself. So there's one source that talks about John getting drunk at a banquet one night and sort of staggering up the stairs and attacking Arthur killing him, cutting his stomach open, filling him full of stones and throwing him out the window into the river below. And that didn't really work out for John as a way to deal with rivals. I mean, John isn't really a template that I think anybody would use. No medieval king is going to be looking and thinking, I want to be like King John. But what Richard also has is a much more recent and a much more successful template for how he might behave. So when Richard II is deposed in 1399, he's replaced by Henry IV, the first of the Lancastrian kings. But Henry IV wasn't Richard II's heir. Richard II had no children. And most people believed that his heirs were the Mortimer family. So the fourth Earl of March had passed away in 1398, the year before Richard II was deposed. And he left behind him two small children, Edmund and John. And so they were considered by many to be the rightful heirs to Richard II and Henry IV comes along and takes the throne instead. Now, these two young boys are too young to press their own claims at this time. And so they don't really oppose Henry. But what Henry does is take them into custody, fairly loose sort of custody. They're kept, you know, in a castle. But everybody knows where they are. And eventually they're abducted, actually by members of the House of York, by Constance of York in particular, who is a sister of the, the then Duke of York, Edward. They're quickly recovered. The plan had been actually to get them to Wales to depose 
Henry IV and replace him with Edmund, the older of the two boys, who goes on to become the fifth Earl of March. But the boys are quickly recovered, and what Henry does then is place them under tighter security. So he removes the loose bonds that they were kept in, and and they're kept much more closely after that. Eventually, they're transferred into the household of Prince Henry, the Prince of Wales, the future Henry V. And when Henry V becomes king in 1413, he immediately releases both the Mortimer boys, who are now men. So Edmund Mortimer, I think, is 21 at the point when Henry becomes king, and he is allowed to take up his position as Earl of March, probably one of the richest noblemen in the country, and he ends up serving the Lancastrian regime impeccably from that point onward. In 1415, there is another plot to put Edmund on the throne, to assassinate Henry V and his brothers and replace him with Edmund. And again, this is led by the House of York. So Richard of Conisborough, who is the father of Richard, Duke of York, the grandfather of Edward IV and Richard III, is executed for being at the head of this conspiracy. But it's Edmund Mortimer who exposes the conspiracy to Henry V. So rather than wanting to be king and go along with this plot to place him on the throne, Edmund goes and tells Henry what's happening and who's involved and gets them arrested and effectively executed. And Edmund dies in 1425, acting as lieutenant in Ireland for Henry VI. And so he serves the Lancastrian regime impeccably for all of his life. And so if Richard is looking for a template for how to deal with these two boys, he has one there that worked. And it doesn't involve murdering the boys. I think if you're looking for the part of the scheme, the plan, that didn't work... It was that initial loose custody where everybody knows where they were and they could be easily abducted. So if I'm Richard, I'm thinking I'll do away with that. And what I'll do is keep the boys nice and safe, bring them up. You know, they're my nephews, they're my family. I'll make sure they're brought up and looked after. But I won't advertise where they are because that encourages people to go looking for them and to try to abduct them. So that's what I think Richard does in 1483. He takes that template, he chops off the bit of it that didn't work and moves into the part where you keep them closely guarded, but safe and protected. And so all these ideas that perhaps one of the princes escaped, for me, are wrong, because I don't think they needed to escape Richard. I don't think they were in any danger. Richard had a perfectly good, perfectly workable template for how to behave. And I think he could quite easily have followed that. And yes, perhaps it wouldn't have worked. Perhaps one or both of the boys would have rebelled in the future but Richard doesn't seem to me the kind of man who would execute a child on the basis that they might do something bad in the future. We know for example Henry VII you know keeps the Earl of Warwick the sad unfortunate Earl of Warwick as a prisoner until 1499 when he's 24 I think at that point and has him executed. You know he just waits till he's an adult never sets him free and has him executed. And so Henry VII doesn't execute a child, so why can't we allow for Richard III not wanting to move straight into executing his own nephews as his kind of first response to a crisis? It just doesn't fit with Richard's personality, the way that he's behaved up until this point. You will find no other example before 1483 of Richard killing, murdering, you know, aside from on the battlefield killing and murdering people or being cruel or nasty for the sake of it. It just doesn't happen. So it requires a belief in this immediate change in his personality in 1483. But he also has this template that worked. Why would you not use that first? If you can save and protect your brother's children, why wouldn't you at least try that before you murdered them? Why would murder be your first move when it's so far away from Richard's personality. So for my money, the princes in the tower were never in danger from their Uncle Richard. I think he kept them somewhere safe. And if I had to kind of nail my colours to the mast here, my theories are that the boys are separated. And again, it's important to remember when we think about them that despite all the Victorian portraiture that shows them kind of clinging to each other, they weren't a single unit. You know, we call them the princes in the tower and it creates this idea that they were holding on to each other, that they were a single unit facing a single fate. But they'd been brought up completely separately. So Edward V, from the age of two until he was 12, 
was raised on the Welsh marches at Ludlow, which is not too far away from where I am. Richard, Duke of York, was raised in London at the court with his mother and his sisters. So very strong parallels there between Prince Arthur Tudor and Prince Henry, the future Henry VIII, in the ways that they're brought up. But they weren't around each other very much. They, they may well barely have known each other. So there was no trauma in separating them, I don't think. And so if I have to offer my theory for what I think happened, I would suggest that Richard maybe sent Edward V up to one of his castles in the north. So we know that he had castles like Middleham, Barnard Castle, Sheriff Hutton, that he had been in charge of for more than a decade, that were stocked with men who were utterly loyal to Richard, who loved him and respected him. You know, he was a well-loved lord in the north. And that he kept Edward there, perhaps as part of the household of the Council of the North. We have the the constitution of the the household of the North that talks about the children being at breakfast. And we know that after these were written, a few months after these were written, Elizabeth of York and Edward Earl of Warwick both went into that household too. So perhaps it was prepared talking about the children in preparation for their arrival. But perhaps there was already at least one child there who needed to be dealt with and and was dealt with with respect. And that would explain why, in the aftermath of Bosworth, we get this huge rush from Henry Tudor and his men to get up to Yorkshire. Now, the other side of that is that obviously he wanted to get his hands on Elizabeth of York, who he had promised to marry to cement his position on the throne. But it's also possible that Edward V was there and that he was keen to get his hands on him. And the easiest way out of that situation when the news arrived that Richard had lost at Bosworth would have been to move Edward V to Ireland. It was the closest safe haven, utterly loyal to the House of York. It would have been the easiest way to get Edward out of harm's way and to safety. And that would explain why the Lambert-Simnel affair emerges in Ireland, because that's where Edward V went after that. And my theory for Richard, Duke of York, is that he goes over to Burgundy to Richard's sister, Margaret, the Duchess of Burgundy, to be protected and raised there. And that's why Perkin Warbeck emerges in that part of the world. And his story originates around Burgundy and the French border. And then he moves to Portugal and then up to Ireland and then goes back to Burgundy again. And so that just kind of fits with the facts, I think. And and it just starts to make sense. I think pieces drop into place that otherwise don't make sense in the ways that people behaved And I just don't think people rebelled against Richard III because they thought he'd done away with the princes in the tower. I think the people that rebelled against Richard III between 1483 and ultimately took to the field at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485 did so for their own very selfish reasons and that the fate of the princes in the tower becomes a convenient, a chivalric and honourable sounding cover for what they did because those men can't say... You know, I want to oppose the king because he's a nice guy who's doing lots of great things for the people and I want to get rich off all the corruption that I used to have. Now, that's not, that's not a reason that people are going to say they're taking to the field of battle. So in the aftermath, they're able to hide behind this idea that Richard could have killed his nephews and, oh yeah, I was outraged about that and that's why I did it. Definitely that's the reason that I fought against him at Bosworth. But I just don't buy it. I don't think it's true. So I think... Richard has been given an incredibly rough ride personally by history. I think he's not the man that history has painted him to be. And I think the story of Richard and the story of the princes in the tower is far less certain than people think it is, is far more interesting than people think it is. And if we accept the possibility that Richard was a nice guy, that he wasn't a tyrant, and that the princes in the tower survived beyond the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, it opens up a whole new world of possibilities for understanding the early Tudor regime, its uncertainty, its fear, its paranoia, its reaction to threats. And I think there's just a whole story there that we've managed to ignore for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so I'm trying to, with my books, you know, the the biography of Richard III and the survival of the princes in the tower I'm trying to pick those things apart, return to the contemporary evidence and say, I think there's a different story here that we've missed and that is potentially far more interesting than the one we think we know. I don't know that it's true. I would never claim that what I say 
is 100% accurate. But this is what I think based on my studies of Richard, of the contemporary source material and trying to make sense of things that in the traditional story that don't really make sense otherwise. So read my books. Hopefully they're interesting. Hopefully they'll tell you a very different story from the one you think you know. Well, you've made a very convincing argument, not only for Richard III, but weaving it into Shakespeare and the Tudors. And can you tell us a little bit more about your books and where we can find them? They are around in... (laughs) No good bookstores, I imagine, but definitely available online. Hopefully you can get them in bookstores near you too. I have written an overview of the Wars of the Roses. I've written a biography of Richard, Duke of York, who is the father of Richard III and Edward IV. He is a figure who I find every bit as interesting and every bit as badly treated by history as his youngest son, Richard III. And understanding him is really some critical context to understanding the beginnings of the Wars of the Roses, why it happened, and ultimately to understanding the Tudors. And I've written a biography of Richard III, which is the the doorstop and the the aid to reaching your kitchen shelves that I mentioned before. I've also written a book called Richard III in Fact and Fiction, which is a, a shorter book that tries to look at some of the most common myths around Richard III and look at what actual evidence we have to prove or disprove any of these common stories that we hear about Richard. Outside of that, I've written a book on the anarchy, the civil war between Stephen and Matilda in the the 12th century, which made me slightly worried that I'm just drawn to civil wars all over the place. Medieval civil wars seem to be where I'm at home all the time. But again, I, I found that a very interesting conflict and I found... Matilda is a fascinating woman, an incredible woman who did incredible things in her time. But I also found Stephen a very different person from the one that history has remembered him as. So the the incompetent fool who stole the throne. Well, he definitely stole the throne, but there's more to it than that. And I think he suffered a lot of the threats that he suffered because he was too much of a nice guy. You know, nice guys don't make very good kings. You need to have that ruthless streak in you. And I think Stephen at least lacked it on several occasions. My most recent book is a biography, a joint biography of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, which I wrote really as a sequel to the anarchy. So Henry II gets the throne at the end of the anarchy. But his story was just so interesting, even up to that point that I wanted to keep going with it. And if you're going to talk about Henry II, it's impossible not to talk about Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was every bit his match and every way an interesting character. So for me, she had led a full medieval life before she even met Henry. She'd been Queen of France, had two children and been on crusade to the Holy Land before she even met Henry II. And after his death, you know, she goes on being the most significant power broker in England, if not much of Western Europe. She champions her son Richard on the throne. She personally raises and delivers the ransom that frees him from captivity. It's her that's behind John getting the throne rather than her grandson Arthur. And so right up to her death, we see her acting as a real player. And it's interesting that it's after her death that the Angevin Empire, for want of a better word, I I try not to call it an empire, but it's after Eleanor's death that it really begins to fall apart and that John starts to lose all of those lands. So I think Henry II and Eleanor were the glue that kept all of that together because they were incredible people and simply no one else was up to the task of doing what they did. And I've got another book due out very soon called Rebellion in the Middle Ages, which just looks at some of the most significant rebellions between the Norman Conquest and the Battle of Bosworth, really, to look at who rebelled, why they rebelled, why did rebellion succeed, why did they fail? Is there a trick to rebelling successfully against the crown? And in the end, looks at an unlikely rebel that was perhaps the most successful rebel in the whole period. But I won't give away who it was. Okay, so you'll just have to come back then. Okay, anytime. (laughs) Now, more about your podcast, please. Yes, so I co-host a podcast called Gone Medieval 
for History Hit. I have a new episode out every Saturday and my co-host Dr Kat Jarman has an episode out every Tuesday. Kat is a a bioarchaeologist who specialises in the Viking era so she looks after the first half roughly of the medieval period and she's got lots of Vikings and Anglo-Saxons as well as lots of interesting things going on uh, around the world as well, China and Africa and the Middle East and all those kinds of places. And I kind of get the second half, so from the Norman conquest onwards, roughly. So again, I get lots of interesting kings and queens, lots of interesting battles and things going on. But we also try to look at some of the less well-known personalities and themes of the time. So recently talked in an episode about a new book by Danielle Sobolski about how to live like a monk. You know, what lessons can we learn from the way that monks lived to help improve the way we live our lives today? So we try to look at lots of interesting things as well as the the big grand sweep of medieval history. And we, we try to bill it as the, the most important, exciting and interesting millennium in human history, which is probably an unreasonable thing to say on a Tudor podcast, but there you go, I've said it now anyway. <laughs> Oh, well, it's your time, so that's okay. How can we find you on social media? I am on Twitter and Facebook as Matt Lewis Author and on Instagram as Matt Lewis History. I'm probably on Twitter far more than I ought to be. I tend to spend the time that I should be writing, checking Twitter, just in case there's something desperately urgent that someone needs to know from 800 (laughs) years ago. So if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm happy to answer any and all questions about the Wars of the Roses, Richard III, the Princes in the Tower, anything like that. As you've probably discovered by now, I need no excuse to talk about these things. Well, thank you very, very much, Matt. This has been great. I always enjoy talking to you. And I meant that when your next book comes out, I'd love to have you back. We'll, We'll find a way to tie it into the Tudors. I don't think that will be a problem. Definitely. I'd come back anytime. Thank you very much for having me, Deb. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.